Confession, our Congregational Confession, the 1689 Confession, however you want to term it. And we started that last week, and uh, we will continue on with that. Um, but what we're going to do tonight is kind of introduce what the next section, which, which would be about, which is dealing with the Trinity, which is our second part, if you want to take it on Westminster Confession. On the Congregational Confession, it's the third part. Yeah. But anyway, on, on this... What we're going to do is stay in with our um, um, commitment to having uh, young people being able to, um, to, to do teaching or however the Lord has gifted uh, these men. And um, so sometimes they get opportunities to come up and um, work on the skill gift that God has given. And so uh, we, we thank you guys. And so what we're going to do is Athanasius tonight, I do believe, it goes back into history, and we'll see how that ties in with the next one. And uh, fortunately, you had done a paper on this mm -hmm. for your class, and so that kind of tied in with this, it's perfect timing. See how the Lord works? Anyway, uh, without further ado, as, as it says on, um, we will have Alan bring us up to speed to what Athanasius was doing back quite a few centuries ago. Yes. Thank you, Alan. Thank you guys for not walking out when you saw that it was me. Um, so as Pastor Dennis was saying, uh, last week we were speaking about the uh, starting on the Westminster Confession, for those of you who weren't here. Uh, we were talking about the subject of the Holy Scriptures. Specifically, what we looked at was the sufficiency of Scriptures. We looked at uh, texts like Psalm 19 verse 7 that says that the law the law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul um, not too long ago I heard Dr. John, John MacArthur talk about this he said uh, that the law of the Lord is perfect that is as opposed to incomplete not as opposed to imperfect if that makes sense uh, it's a perfect echo of what Paul was saying to Timothy when he, rose, he wrote in 2 Timothy uh, 3 15 to 17 we saw this last week uh, he's speaking about the scriptures and he's saying to Timothy from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus and then he goes on to say all scripture is breathed out by God profitable we saw that uh, for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness that the that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work so um, there is this idea that the scriptures are wholly sufficient and this is going to tie it into this study this is going to tie it tie it into the next study that we're going to do uh, which is dealing with the holy trinity without the supremacy of scripture what you're talking about there is no holy trinity because our logic 
cannot wrap itself around the idea of a triune God. It's just something that doesn't it doesn't fit in our minds because there is nothing in the created order that is like the Trinity, if that makes sense. It's one of those attributes that makes God holy and perfect and by himself. And so um, we should also note, and this is, these are things that we saw last week, uh, the view of scripture that Christ had. We're Christians. We want to be like Jesus, right? Um, and if you start reading through the Gospels, you're going to see what, what did Jesus usually say to people. He said, have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? So there is this continual example that he's putting forth for Christians that you can see even um, in the temptation that he withstood in the, in the wilderness, right? You have Satan come to him and Satan is saying, uh, do this, do that. And he's saying, have you not, or I'm losing the words right now, but <laughs> he's using Holy Scripture <laughs> to, uh, to combat temptation. And we know he didn't have to do that. He's God himself. But he was setting an example for believers that would come um, uh, you should see in your note why, why church history, why Arianism. Uh, it's because there's nothing new under the sun. We're gonna we're gonna see that Arianism is a heresy that is still alive today. Even when it dies back in church history, it's gonna keep on coming back and coming back. It just gets rebranded and brought back under a different name. Does anybody know what Arianism is today? It's not called Arianism. It's called something else. Yes. No. Is it a popular church? Well, uh, we. C- what do you have? No. Uh, we would say that a re- repackaging of Arianism is the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, because Arianism, what it does is. A denial of the Trinity, right? It makes Christ something lower than God. So there is nothing new under the sun. Uh, and of course, the goal tonight, um, and the goal every time that we come together, is that we would see Christ and Him crucified. Uh, our, our, our charge is the gospel. And the reason why we talk about these things is so that we can listen to the gospel again and be reminded of what Christ did for us on the cross. So if you would please turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. Um, I actually want to get to verse 6 but we're going to start reading from verse 4. Is it Galatians chapter 4? Yes. Verse 4. The one. And it reads, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I want us to read that again. And see if you spot the Trinity there. Right? And because you are son, uh, because you are sons, verse 6, God the Father has sent the Holy Spirit 
of his only begotten son into our hearts, crying Abba Father. Let's pray. Father, that, uh, that you would be glorified, we pray. Quicken our hearts and our minds that we might understand and see Jesus. We pray in his name and for his sake. Amen. So some background information. Actually, I'm going to give you guys five names. I'm going to try to keep it to five names. I might throw in a name or two, but they all should be in your notes. Um, we're, for, we're first going to speak about Constantine. He's a really important character in church history. What you have in the early church, we all know, the early church was a persecuted church, right? The first 300 years, what you have is pers persecuted people. Um, even the death of Jesus was sort of a president. What were the Jews saying? They were saying, uh, crucify him, we're for Caesar, we're not for this man. And so from uh, all throughout church history, the first 300 years, you have, I mean, uh, starting with uh, Nero, we actually, you go forward after Christ and you get to Paul. And now Paul in Second Timothy is in a dungeon. He's about to die. He gets killed by Nero. Nero starts blaming Christians for stuff, uh, throws them in jail, throws them to the Colosseum, martyrs them. Uh, then you have Domitian, who also kills more Christians. And then you have the third one, this Trajan. And what happens with Trajan is that he does set up a precedent. And that is, his policy sort of becomes the standard policy for the rest of the 300-year period. And that is, uh, he says, writing to a, name made, uh, a man named Pliny, uh, he says, on the, one, on the one hand, the nature of their crime is such that the state should not waste time seeking them out. On the other hand, if they're accused and refuse to recant, they should be punished. So basically he's saying, yeah, Christians are good people. They submit to Caesar. They pay their taxes. They're good citizens. But they don't acknowledge that Caesar is our Lord. Therefore, if you need to kill them for whatever reason, go ahead and kill them. And so that is really becomes the, the, the backbone of the Roman Empire and their view towards Christians. They're not always persecuted. But they always have that law there, you know, that if they need to be killed, they're going to be killed. And so uh, all of that changes by the year 313. You have Constantine comes into power. He start, he's, a, he's a skilled military man. And he starts taking over, conquering, conquering. And what happens in 313, or maybe a little bit before that, is that he is about to go into a battle. And... If he wins this battle, he becomes the ruler of the western part of the Roman Empire. So, history says, there are two historians, both of them Christian, actually, that say this. We, I, I, don't, I don't know, you, you, know may, you make whatever you want out of it, but these historians will say, well, Constantine had a vision. And he hears, uh, go and conquer in my name. And this is Christ talking to him. So Constantine goes to his army, and he has them paint the, the, first two letter, the first two letters of Christ, the chiro, into their shields. And so they actually go out and they conquer. And they, uh, Constantine becomes the ruler of the western part of the empire. And so what happens now is that he starts favoring Christians. He issues what is called the Edith of Milan. That's his, this is in 313. So finally, for the first time in church history since Pentecost, you have 
Christianity be, being a legal religion, religion. And not only that, but Constantine actually he likes the Christians. He starts giving them tax exemptions. He starts giving them land for them, for them to build their buildings. He comes to see Christianity as the thing that's going to unify his empire. And um, many, you know, you might ask the question, was Constantine was really a Christian or not? I wouldn't want to answer that question. I think that I've read people who were very orthodox, and they'll say, yeah, he trusted in Christ. He must be in heaven. And all the others will say, no, he wasn't a Christian. <laughs> so we're, on this case, we're going to trust that the Lord will do right, and, and uh, he will judge Constantine uh, rightly. But by the year 322, he becomes the sole ruler of the empire. Now he is in charge of everything. And he continues to give favor to the Christians, land, tax exemptions. And so they become sort of his favored people. Um, uh, that's our first name. We're going to go to the second name. That is Alexander of Alexandria. Not much to say about him. He is a... I would call him a faithful servant of the Lord. Uh, he was a bishop in Alexandria, which means he was above all the churches in the city. So he oversaw all the, all the pastors in that church. He had defended the faith against a, another heresy. We're not going to get into that one today. But that, fa that heresy was called Sabellianism. And uh, anybody want to take a shot at what Sabellianism is? <laughs> Sabellianism. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, so it's a di it's a different it's the same thing. It's a denial of the Trinity in a different way, and basically what it what it says is, uh, the Lord is actually you have probably heard this analogy, which is heretical, but people don't realize that they're doing it, um, and they would say God is like water. It either comes in, it, it's either liquid, or sometimes it's gas, or sometimes it's iced, right? That's civilianism. Is that sort of like right. right, same thing. So modalism, it's called modalism. One, one is Pentecostal, we were talking about that. Uh, T.D. Jakes is a teacher of modalism. Um, so, so why is that a wrong analogy? Because what it's saying is, it's denying the fact that there are three persons in the Trinity, and that and this is when it gets kind of complicated, where we have to we trust we go back to what we learned last week, and that we trust that what the scriptures teach. The scriptures. So it's kind of limiting. Well, it's saying it's saying instead of so we we teach and the scriptures teach that there are there is one being of God, and there are three persons in that being. Yeah. It's hard for us to understand that because I am one person and I'm also one being. Right. God is one God, one being of God, and in Him are three persons. But Sabellianism, what it does is it's saying, no, it's one person that shows himself in three different ways, if that makes sense. And so uh, he had fought against Sabellianism. He had fought against Sabellianism alongside a man named Arius. He was under um, Alexander in, the, in Alexandria. He was under... Uh, in care of a church called in Baucalis, I believe. Yeah, Baucalis. And um, they were good friends. They fought Sabellianism together. Uh, history says that Arius was a, 
a handsome man. He was a skilled musician. He would write songs and win people over through his songs and teach his his uh, his teachings. Because <laughs> we're not gonna, we're not there yet <laughs> uh, through song. And he held uh, or he helps refuse Tibetanism. And he also gets involved in in sort of pushing the Christian faith for the heathens of the East. Um, at this point, they held to Platonism. And Platonism taught there is this supreme being that's completely outside of our sort of sphere. And, but there is one God, and uh, he's out there. We just can't know him. And so he starts sort of, him and along with other Christian apologists, they start saying that God is the God of Scripture. The next name is Athanasius of Alexandria, and um, he okay. is. I'm sorry, I mm -hmm. thought you're moving forward, but was that to further the kingdom of God, or or was it to move forward in their own? Good question. Because <laughs> were they were they for Christ, saying like, oh, that God that you believe in, maybe because they had a sense of a higher being. Right. I mean, so did they use that as like a lever? It depends, because I would, I, I would say some of them did, some of them didn't. Okay. So you would see the Apostle Paul in Athens. What does he do? He says, hey, that unknown God that you guys, that you guys have his stone right there, that's our God that we preach. Right. So it can be used in a positive sense. It can also be used in a, in a negative sense, in a worldly sense. Right. Like, like we have the same right. God, right. you know? So we're going <laughs> to, yeah. Right, you we can do we can we were talking about that about Islam because you can you can sort of do the same thing with Islam where you whereas you have Islam they would accept yeah the God of Abraham mm -hmm. the problem is what comes after right. you know they say no it's Ishmael no we say no it's uh, Isaac and once you once you reject that you've served the idol right. you you've already left the scriptures because that not that's not what the scriptures teach. Right. The next name is Ath uh, uh, Athanasius of Alexandria. He uh, was born in the year two, 297 or 298. We're not completely sure. He was, uh, near, he was born near the Nile River. And we don't know as much about his childhood. Uh, but we know from his later writings that he spent some time with the monks of the desert. These are not the monks as we think of them today. Uh, some of these men were... They were godly men. Uh, some of these, the, some of these men were were devout Christians. You know, they, yeah, they had problems sometimes, uh, but that's because we can look back on our history and we can see what the problems were. Many of these guys, they were following uh, the Lord and they were doing their as much, as best as they could. They were doing their, their right thing, right? Um, and so he writes on the incarnation very likely before he was 18 years old. Huh. On the Incarnation, I really recommend it if you guys want to read a good book from the year 318. Wow. Uh, I've been reading it and it's, I mean, it's, a, it's amazing. Uh, he, he talks about all the, all the implications of Christ becoming, uh, becoming a man and what does that mean for us and what does that mean for God. And, and this is an 18 year old. And you can read this book and your, your mind expands. 
I actually wanted to know, uh, Barb, that last time we were talking about uh, the canon. And I think it was either you or someone here that ra raised the question, when was the canon closed? Kind of deal? Well, the canon, I, I researched it, the canon wasn't officially closed by a church council until 397. We are talking about Athanasius writing in 318, right? And when you read that book, there is no question that he knows what the canon is. I mean, he's speaking, he's speaking Bible in that whole canon. And I actually took note of some of some of his uh, some of some of, some of the quotes in the book. In uh, closing the book, he says to Macarius, who's the guy that he's writing the the book to, he says, "This will give you a beginning, and you must go on to prove its truth by the study of the scriptures." Before the canon was closed, that's how these Christians were talking. They were written and inspired by God. And we who have learned from inspired teachers who read the scriptures and became martyrs for the Godhead of Christ. This is before the, Aryan, the Aryan controversy. So this is not something that the Aryan controversy happened and for the first time they realized. You might, you might have seen that in the History Channel. They got together at Nicaea, <laughs> you know? They got together at Nicaea and they invented the doctrine of the Trinity. No, this is before, I mean, you're talking about, you know, eight years before, something like that. Uh, he's, he's, talking, he's saying these people became martyrs for the Godhead of Christ. And he finishes, make further contribution to your eagerness, eagerness to learn. I'm going to give you another one, and this one's for free. I know this one, you're going to like this one, Pastor Dennis, uh, because we, we learn about, even back then, their view of men, right? This is what he writes. In speaking about God, finding a remedy to recover mankind after the fall, right? I'm going to quote now, quote. Was he to demand repentance from men for their transgression? You might say that that was worthy of God and argue that as through the transgression they became subject to corruption, so through repentance they might return to incorruption again. But repentance would not guard the divine consistency, for if death did not hold dominion over men, God will still remain untrue. Nor does repentance recall men from what is according to their nature so that it does not make them cease from sinning. Sorry, I said, <laughs> I'm going to go back. Nor does repentance recall men from what is according to their nature. All that it does is to make them cease from sinning. Had it been a case of a trespass only and of not subsequent corruption, repentance would have been well enough. But when once transgression had begun, mere, uh, sorry, when once transgression had begun, men came under the power of the corruption proper to their nature and were bereft of the grace which belonged to them as creatures in the image of God. No, repentance could not meet their case. I'm going to give you an analogy to explain what he's saying. You see a lion, right? And you put before that lion a bloody steak, right? And you put before a lion a bowl of salad. Ten times out of ten, that lion will pick the steak, right? 
because his nature beats him to to pick the stake, the stake every single time. And that's what Athanasius is teaching. You're fallen, and ten times out of ten you choose sin. So he's teaching monergism, which is the idea that in salvation only one, uh, only God Himself, has the is the one acting. You know, so he gives us a new. So the only way to get that that lion to change is by giving him a new palate. And now he likes salad and not steak. A new nature, right? So now we find ourselves, hey, I don't, I don't want to sin anymore. I want God. And that's what happens at salvation. Um, that, was, that was for free. <laughs> anyway, uh, the, uh, the next one, the last one is Eusebius of Nic Nicomedia. I don't have much to talk about, it, about him. I just want to say that he became the leading proponent of Arianism. Arianism dies shortly after. He doesn't la last very much, and we're going to talk about that. But uh, the guy who, who pushed Arianism was Eusebius. Now we're going to go back to Arius, and I've titled this part, The Fall of Arius. And Arius becomes a fool. Now we know, uh, looking back, that Arius was always a fool. Because if you know the true and living God, you, it's promised you won't fall away. Um, but Arius shows what was inside of him. And the problem with Arius, and we kind of touched, we kind of touched on this going back to the philosophers, was that he was in the midst of this, and he is sort of asking the question, are we worshiping the same God? And he says, yeah, so he caves in. Uh, and I wanted to, to look at the first chapter of Romans, if you would please turn with me there. Uh, Romans 1, uh, we're going to read the verses 21 to 25. Romans 1, 21 through 25. This is uh, the story of mankind, but we can certainly see areas there says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, nor give thanks to Him. But they, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And that's what happens in Arianism. Arianism wanted to avoid the charge of polytheism or Arius himself because he would go to the, to the philosophers and say, well, we worship the, the son of God, he is God, and they say, well, right, you worship two gods, or you worship three gods. And he'd say, no, we, like you, worship the supreme being. So what he ends up doing is he ends up saying, okay, Christ is everything. He is the image, he is the image of God. He is, we can call him God. We can worship him. But at the end of the day, he's just a little bit short of being God. And the teaching refrain 
what he makes songs and he's teaching a church so one of the reframes was there was a time when the word was not and this was become sort of the anthem of the Aryan controversy and that's the question was Christ was there ever a time where Christ was not and that becomes a, the question for the Aryans and so uh, we can we can see from there that Arius does not have the same view of scripture that Jesus did <laughs> right because he he caves in on that and uh, we can see all the problems I, I, I actually actually also wanted to point you to first John 5 uh, verses 20 and 21 and John writing here this is uh, in speaking of the deity of Christ and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son Jesus Christ he Christ is the true God and eternal life little children keep yourselves from idols that's exactly what Arius does not do. Says that uh, Godkin, I and I, I his name is his name his name escapes me, but he he did a he wrote a really good book on Arianism. I, I'm actually drawing a lot from what he taught. Uh, he said men who agreed in nothing else agreed in this practical subordination of revelation to philosophy. So what you what they did was they put philosophy on top of the scriptures and they allowed if I can't understand it then it cannot be true so what happens is that then Arius becomes convinced he's teaching this and all of a sudden he hears Alexander his bishop teaching that Christ is God and so Arius goes up to Alexander and he says you're you're a heretic <laughs> and so Alexander says no and so he realizes the problem he calls uh, Arius to repentance. He tries to explain to Arius, hey, this is, this is not how it, how it is. I'll show you with scripture. But Arius does not, he does not recant. He won't repent. So Arius has no other option but to excommunicate him from the church. And so what happens is that once Arius gets uh, excommunicated, now you have a huge controversy because Arius he is a popular man. He's a good teacher. And he starts writing to other bishops and starts saying, hey, this man, this man, and we know uh, from his other writings, Arius was not an honest man. He would lie, he would lie to get his way. So he's writing to other bishops saying, hey, this man is excommunicated. And there was even a point at which people were marching through the streets singing Arius's refrains and and saying kind of give us our teacher back and so at this point Constantine we talked about him before but we're gonna bring him back now Constantine had seen and had come to regard Christianity as the thing that would unify the Empire so he sees all these problems and he says this needs to be resolved I don't care if you are Aryan <laughs> I don't care which way you go we just need to resolve it so everybody gets together. He says, at my expense, you're all going to meet in Nicaea. And so all these bishops from all throughout the empire, we call that, uh, church historians will either say this is the first or the second 
church or worldwide church council we would say that the first one was in in jerusalem the in the book of acts acts chapter 15 when they get together and they're like what are what are we what are we going to do about the gentiles are they supposed to get circumcised and james and peter say no that's fine go back just abstain from sexual immorality from food sacrifice to idols and live a godly life and that's the that's the first council well the second council is the question is jesus really god right so they get together uh, 318 bishops, maybe about 300. They picked the people believe that 318 was sort of a symbolic number because that's however many people Abraham circumcised. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, 318 bishops or 300, something like that. They all get together, and the question is posed. Now, Arius himself is not leading Arianism because he's not a bishop. And this was for bishops to discuss. Arius was probably there. We know Athanasius of Alexandria was there. He, as Athanasius of Alexandria is there as a deacon because he's a deacon under Alexander himself. And he's sort of Alexander's protege. And so Eusebius of Nicomedia, that, that fi the fifth name that I gave you, he's the one propo proposing Arianism and explains it. So he's really confident about his Arian thing. And he goes in there and he explains Arianism to all these bishops. He's really confident. He's like, well, I got this. But it turns out that he gives, he gives his presentation and everybody is really angry at him. <laughs> you know, now think about this. Yes, at this point in history, you already have a Roman emperor who was favoring Christianity. But think about the men who showed up to uh, the Council of Nicaea. This had been men that had been persecuted for years before this happened. These are men who were, many of them had been tortured. They had endured for the sake of the gospel. And these men are, they're angry. I mean, Athanasius is kind of saying, he realizes more than, any, more than anyone else. And if you read, I mean, I read you some of the quotes, how at 18 he's saying these things. This uh, the Council of Nicaea is in 325. He wrote on the Incarnation 318, uh, uh, 318, so he was 18 or 19. And so at Nicaea, he, I mean, his, his bells go off right away as soon as he, he can spot that Arianism is a serious error. Because what it means is that if Christ is not really God, then we have been committing idolatry for 300 years. And so... Uh, Christ has no power to save us. We can go back to the text in Galatians. That, you're still lost in your sins. Right, you're still lost in your sins. And so that's, Athanasius is able to pick that out right away. And I'm sure there were people like, that's not a big deal. You know, <laughs> it's not a big deal. But anyway, uh, and I, it, it happens, I think, with Mormonism all the time when they go, they love picking out from Christians who are, newer or don't know their doctrine and don't know their Bible and they'll see a Christian and they'll try to convince him hey, the Bible says that he's the son of God, how can he be son and be uncreated and we have to realize that the Bible as a whole is teaching that Christ himself is God and there is no gospel without the doctrine of the Trinity so Arianism uh, is utterly rejected or almost unanimously rejected. There were obviously a 
few of the Aryan party who were still sort of for Arianism. And so uh, they enact the, the Nicene Creed under Athanasius' scrutiny. And so they, they uh, come up with the Nicene Creed, a way that you would confess the faith and renounce your Arianism, and, and then you have to sign it. And that way, we all know that we're all united in this, in, against Arianism. So, um, Athanasius, there, he's, he's, he's writing later on, and I like this quote that he wrote. He says, considering that other, other heresies, her elder sisters have been openly prescribed, Arianism in her craft and cunning affects to array herself in scripture language like her father the devil and is forcing her way back into the church's paradise. And that was the problem with Arianism. You could use all the scripture language she could. I mean, there, there wasn't a scripture verse that they couldn't twist. They could say, well, you know, the... The Son of God is to be worshipped. Yeah, He is. He's just not God. God. He's almost there. He, but He is the image of God. He is. He is the. You know all the things that Colossians say. He is the perfect image of God, the exact icon, and and we are to to bow down to Him, and and so that's why Athanasius was convinced. He said. He says later on, this is for sure the last of the heresies. The Antichrist is coming right after this one. Because this one is a tough one, <laughs> you know. Um, anyway, they they condemn um, Arianism. Arius goes into exile, but or he is exiled. But uh, Nicaea's victory is, is sort of short lived, even though they have an actual an actual signed document. Um, right away, they keep teaching the heresy. I mean, they they don't stop. Uh, moreover, Eusebius, who had, uh, who had presented Arianism, people believe that he was actually a distant relative of Constantine. So he is right there in the palace, and he's kind of trying to start saying to Constantine, hey, you were kind of too rough with the Arians. Yes, Barb? You may have said this already, and if you did, I apologize. When was the Council of Nicaea? 325. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I, I had not said that before. Anyway, they, they, they did continue to teach the heresy. Um, now, in the, in three years later, uh, Alexander goes home to be with the Lord. Athanasius becomes the bishop of Alexandria. And as soon as he becomes the bishop of Alexandria, I mean, Athanasius knew more so than anyone else. He was on his he was on his guard about Arianism. And so even right after Arianism, he's the one writing and writing. And he's saying, this cannot just be another denomination. No, these men have to, this teaching has to be, it has to leave the church. Right. Either that or we lose the faith. Right. So uh, Athanasius is sort of pushing on and pushing on it. So now finally he becomes a bishop. And what happens is that in Alexandria, now you have a sort of a stronghold for what came to be known as the Nicene faith, right? The, the Trinitarians. And so he, became, he, he sort of makes it a center where people come and learn about the Nicene faith. And they, um, they, they make it into a, into, into a good center for that. Uh, now, he was exiled a total of five times. <laughs> 
Because as soon as he becomes bishop, this is when sort of his sufferings start. Because <laughs> uh, there, was, there was a few Arians, you know, within Alexandria. And so uh, first they accuse him of doubling in magic. And so they, they, bring him in, they bring him before a council. And uh, Godkin, or I can't say his name, Godkin, writing about it, says they were accusing him of so many things that that's what saved him. Because they just were making things. He did that. <laughs> right. I saw him once. Right. Right. They discredit him. Right. And so what they, what the, what the people from the the government, the empire, what they did was that they actually sent, um, they sent men to go get some evidence. Like, hey, he's being accused of all these things. We're gonna send these spies, or not these spies, but these officials to Egypt, and they're gonna gather, gather some evidence. But Athanasius, what he does is that he goes to Constantine, and he starts fighting for the faith with with Constantine. But what happens there is that the story says that Constantine didn't want to sort of talk to him, and Athanasius sort of goes up to him and stops his horse as he was riding, and gets an audience. And so that kind of works to get Constantine a little bit agitated about Athanasius. And so what happens is that Athanasius is called again to meet Constantine and there's Eusebius of Nicomedia he says to Constantine hey Athanasius was boasting of being able to stop the supply of corn to uh, to Constantinople to the capital and so Constantine believed him or at least we think he did he exiles Athanasius and that was the first time that he gets exiled and I mean he just continues to get I'm not gonna go over every exile basically he comes back starts writing, starts, and then someone <laughs> gets him out. And so uh, there's also the, the third time that he's exiled. He actually, um, what happens is that the, in this whole time, you had the Nicene, the, the Nicene phase still was technically the official uh, doctrine of the empire, right? Arianism was still a heresy in paper, even though you had people, do, uh, people were teaching Arianism. Arianism was still s sort of technically a heresy. But what happens is that when the son of Constantine becomes the sole ruler of the empire, he actually is an Arian himself. Now, right, and rulers love Arianism. And when you look at the history of Arianism, what you're going to see is that usually people of high power will be Arians. Do you have an idea? Well, that, and also because Christ is the son of God who became a slave. That doesn't fit well with the narrative of the world, if you want to be a ruler, right? So rulers tended to be Aryan. And so, um, and so they, they bring, uh, they sort of, they, the, the, the son of Constantine is an, Aryan, is an Aryan, and he actually makes... Arianism sort of legal destroys and denies the Nicene faith. Uh, Athanasius is, is exiled into the desert. He's in the desert. And even Jerome himself later on is writing about this. And this is when he famously said that the world uh, found itself Arian or it grown to found it. I, I mean, out of nowhere, the whole world now is Arian. There is no longer the Nicene faith. What happened to Christians? 
But we know, of course, that the Lord has his remnant. He has his people there. And so uh, this man dies, Constantine's son. Um, Athanasius returns. He again starts the charge against Arianism. They, I, I loved what, what uh, Athanasius said about Arianism. He sort of likens them to the Pharisees. And he says, they were hypocritical with God's name and were, and were convicted of blaspheming when they said, why do you, being a man, make yourself God? And sayest, I and the Father are one. And so too, this counterfeit Arius feigns to speak of God, introducing scripture language, but on all sides recognized as godless Arius, denying the Son and reckoning him among, among the creatures. So, the exiles continue. Athanasius continues to fight. Uh, by the year 373, Arius is already, uh, sorry, Athanasius is back to Alexandria. Um, and Arianism is pretty much extinct, extinct by this time. He's already fought the good fight, and he's pretty much seen the, the entire heresy go down, at least within the Roman Empire. He died in seventy in three seventy three, and uh, there was there was a group of Christians. They were they were called the Cappadocians, the Cappadocian Fathers, and they continued sort of the Nicene faith, and they bring it to a close in three hundred and eighty one, the Council of Constantinople under Theodosius the Great. He was another emperor, who seemed to be a true Christian and who really was the first one that said he outlawed all sort of pagan worship installed Christianity and said br he brought the Cappadocians and said we're going to uh, bring the Nicene faith and we're going to make the Nicene faith the, uh, the faith of the empire and so Arianism is finally completely put to rest in 381 and I would ask you what about you Psalm 1-1 Verses 1 and 2. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Would you say that about Athanasius? That he was a, a man planted by the streams of water the law of God and he wasn't able to or he was he was convinced that there was nothing but the scriptures I would also point you to Revelation 22 verse 8 this is after all the revelations have been given to John it says I John am the one who heard and saw these things and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. There's also the third, the third verse of that same chapter. It's talking about the, the new Jerusalem. It says, 
No longer will there be anything accursed. Note this. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. You realize what's going on there? The throne of God and of the Lamb will worship Him. One person. Or one being. <laughs> End up teaching you guys. And if we if we can go back to uh, Galatians chapter four, because I also I I, I do want to uh, close with that uh, and going back to the gospel and and hopefully I'm not sure are, are we gonna do the more into the Holy Trinity next week? Are we gonna go? Are we, Sort of the confession, the Trinity. Okay. So, so we're yeah, we're gonna see more of that next week. Um, but Galatians four four or four six, and it goes back to the gospel. And because you are sons, God the Father has sent the Spirit or the Holy Spirit of His only begotten Son into our hearts. And the conclusion is, will you submit to the authority of the scriptures? Or will you, with Arias, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, T.D. Jakes, will you exalt your own reason and end up bowing down to a creature? And as John says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we do thank you for, for the revelation that you give us in your word. We pray that you would give us the grace and the, and the conviction to hold on to your word and, and to uh, know that you have spoken, Lord, and to meditate on your law and be uh, firmly planted on it. And we thank you and we pray that you would take us home safely. In the name of Christ. Thank you.